Hello, friends. I'm so glad you found me here at the Steward Project Podcast, but we have to start each episode with a little bit of a disclaimer. Because this podcast is focused on the intersections of service, social justice, spirituality, and self-care, please know that we will talk about some challenging topics, some things that might be uncomfortable, or some things that might trigger us. So I just want you to come into this space fully aware I also want to be very clear that I occasionally drop an F-bomb or two. So if you have young children nearby, maybe use your earplugs or make sure that they know that the person you're listening to is just really, really passionate. Here we go. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Steward Project podcast. In this episode, I'd like to expand on my concept of radical self-care by including another radical tendency or another way of being that I think we must pull into if we're going to really do radical self-care. So in my last episode, in episode 16, I talked a little bit about the reality check, that we have to be very clear about the reality in which we do our work, the reality of this world. We have to be very clear about how we are being able to do this work who is allowing us to do the work we're doing, and under what conditions we're doing it. And that is a radical tendency, keeping that reality check constantly in the front of our mind as we do our work, as we do our self-care. Because what I find is the issue of the lack of self-care in the helpers, healers, and changemakers' lives is this kind of over-covering of reality. Sometimes reality sucks, (laughs) and sometimes reality is painful. And sometimes the reality is that we are part of the pain, right? And we have to be very clear about that and very honest about that because that's the only way anything changes. But because that's so uncomfortable, sometimes we cover over reality. We try to ignore it. We try to debate it. We try to push it away or we try to numb out from it. And that becomes an ultimate issue when we're talking about the self-care and the, the thriving of helpers, healers, and change makers. So the first radical tendency that I shared with you in episode 16 was the reality check. In this episode, I'd like to share with you the radical tendency of remembering. When I talk about the word remember, obviously we can pull into the literal definition, right? And to remember simply means to have in or be able to bring to one's mind an awareness of someone or something that one has seen, known, or experienced in the past. Now, I think this definition is very important for us to keep in mind because it's about being able to bring to mind an awareness of something that we've already seen, known, experienced in the past. And when it comes to radical self-care, one of the things that we need to remember at the very outset is the essence of who we are. Without our labels, without our titles, without our prestige, without our degrees, without any of those things, who are we at our core? The very essence of who we are. And some of us might have to go back a little ways to remember who we are. And others of us might have to go back a long way to remember who we are. And when I say the essence of who we are, what I mean is, who were you before other people told you who to be? Who were you? What, what was your essence before you were put into a box or a category? Maybe even before you were gendered. So for some of us, this, this box, we were put into a box at a very young age and had to create a persona or an affect that worked for the other people around us. 
What I mean by that, and this is a, a concept that Gabor Mate often talks about, and he's a physician and an addiction specialist and an all-around amazing philosopher around trauma and understanding the trauma of addiction. But he talks a lot about attachment versus authenticity. And what he says is when we're very young, especially as infants, we have to be attached to a caregiver, right? We, we literally have to be attached to someone else to get our needs met. And what infants learn very quickly is that if the caregiver that they must be attached to to survive is dysregulated or is ill or is unable to care for them in a loving, kind way, they must then, that child must then sacrifice their authenticity, right? They must sacrifice who they truly are to appease the caregiver in their life. And what he says is some of us have to sacrifice our authenticity for attachment. And he gives a few different examples of this, but one of the, and one example he gives is if you have a very violent alcoholic parent who rages a lot, as a child you learn very quickly that in order to not provoke that anger and violence to you, you have to be a peacemaker. You have to numb out to the rage and the anger and the shame and the trauma that's ex that you're experiencing. In order to be attached to that rage and <laughs> that alcoholic raging person, that infant or that child has to create a persona that is inauthentic because attachment is more important in those years. And I hope that I've done justice to his concept in any way, but it's fascinating to me when I really read some of his books and he has an amazing book called When the Body Says No and another one called In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts. I'll tag both of those in the show notes. And he has a ton of YouTube uh, videos. So I really encourage you just to Google him and watch a few of the videos. Even a, a few hour long ones are phenomenal. And he's done some amazing podcasts where this stuff comes out. But I really appreciate his clarity around attachment and authenticity. The challenge is for those of us who in childhood had to sacrifice our authenticity for attachment, we then as adults, our job, the work, <laughs> the radical self-care comes in to help us remember to uncover all the crap move away all the crap and all the filters that people have put on us to figure out who we were in our authenticity. For some of us, we were able to have a childhood of authenticity because our caregivers were authentic and honest about themselves. So we didn't have to make that compromise. But then maybe some of us, when we first start working as a helper healer or a change maker, realize that the organizations we work for or the society in which we serve requires that we sacrifice our authenticity for attachment. One of the things that I've noticed when it's not an authenticity versus attachment issue in childhood, but it is in the occupational field, is that, you know, as a social worker, I recognize that in order to fully do my work and, and serve the kids that I need to serve and the families I need to serve, I have to be attached to them. Meaning I have to really get in there. I have to be somewhat emotionally involved with them. I have to hear their stories. I have to understand their struggles and their traumas. And then I have to figure out solutions based on what they've told me and their history and where they're going. I have to take all of that into consideration. I also have to think about the student and are they graduating? Are they on track? Are they reading at grade level? Right? All, the, all those different things. So I have to be attached to do my work. And the work that I do requires that I stay somewhat unattached. Right? Because in social work, we have boundaries. We have ethics, quote unquote, where we can talk to certain people, but not other people right? around confidentiality or where we can share information with some people, but not other people. And 
the challenge in that is that some of our systems require that we stay attached to the system. And in order to stay attached to the system, we can't be as attached and authentic with our clients as we want to be, if that makes sense. I know some of you in the education and social services world understand what I mean. Because true authenticity would be to be very clear and, and have clear boundaries with your those you serve, but to also be able to give them a hug if you want to, or to be able to share resources outside of the ones that you can provide to say, you know what, I can't provide that, but this agency could. Some of us aren't allowed to do that. Some of us then, if we want to get deeper into the analogy with attachment and authenticity, some of us are in organizations that we know are doing damage. We're in organizations that we see are traumatizing people. And in order to make a paycheck and a living, we must sacrifice our authenticity for that attachment to a job or to an income because capitalism. So all throughout our lives, we have an opportunity within each relationship that we have, whether it's in the very initial relationship with our caregivers or with those who, who adopt or foster or otherwise take care of us. And then we, anytime we build a relationship with someone else, the start of that relationship decides whether or not we can be authentic in that relationship. Whether I can show up as my whole self in all my glory and in all my mess and still feel like I can make a connection with someone or an organization, or if I recognize before I even make that connection with this other person or this other organization, I have to switch who I am. I have to put on a face. I have to put on a mask. I have to put on a title. I have to put on my white girl voice. <laughs> Let's be honest. That's what it is. I have to sacrifice some level of my authenticity to get the attachment of a job or of a degree even. If I want to finish this degree, I have to play a role. And I think that's the challenge. That's the, the wedge between us and our authentic selves that then gets exacerbated by the vicarious trauma that we absorb in our day jobs as helpers, healers, and change makers. And then that impacts our burnout long-term. It's a spectrum. And I hope that makes sense. It's a spectrum from birth through our, our jobs and our work lives. And the beauty of remembering is that that's where we get clear. That's where we remember what it felt like to be authentic. That's where we then get hungry for that feeling of authenticity again. And we want to remember what it felt like and we want to pull into it again. So that's when we will realize, hey, what's happening for, with us right now isn't working. What used to work doesn't work anymore. Or I'm feel, starting to feel compassion fatigue. I'm starting to feel burnout. I'm starting to really carry the vicarious trauma in my work. That's when we start to say, I'm done. I can't work like this anymore. I can't work in this field anymore. And that's also when we start to get tired of our own bullshit and we're ready for change. And that change comes through radical self-care. Again, I want to remind you my concept of radical self-care is in the very definition of radical, that it gets to the root causes of our stress and our trauma and our burnout, which is what attachment is, right? It's a root cause. And it also breaks up the status quo, both in our lives. Again, if you're just going along, humming year to year, feeling stressed out, feeling overwhelmed, getting sick. And, and, you know, you have to at one point realize like that is your status quo. Now that has become your baseline. And at some point you have to get tired of that status quo. You have to get tired of feeling tired all the time, <laughs> right? As Fannie Lou Hamer said, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And if you don't know who Fannie Lou Hamer is, look her up. Amazing social worker, activist, She's the reason many of us as women and as black folks can vote. Yeah. 
And she's also, she was also a practitioner of radical self-care. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about how she pulled into self-care when I talk about rhythm and rituals as a radical tendency. And that's for a later podcast. Just in remembering who we are authentically will push us to engage in radical self-care because we will be tired of sacrificing our authenticity. We will begin to say, I'm not going to do it anymore. I remember what it felt like to be whole and authentic, and I'm going to get back to that regardless of the crap that this organization or this society is going to throw at me. Another part of remembering is that we have to always remember our why when we're doing the work. Our why, W-H-Y, right? And this is something I know has been floated out there. There's books on it. There's YouTube videos and TED Talks on it. But truly, one of the radical self-care practices, especially as we're feeling burnt out or we're debating whether or not we want to continue doing this amazing helping, healing, and change-making work, is that we have to remember why we got into this work in the first place. Now, if you've listened to most of my podcasts, especially the beginning few, you probably heard my concept of why folks get into this work of helping, healing, and change-making. My thought is that either you had a phenomenal childhood and you want every child to have that and every adult to experience what that would be like, or you had a not-so-great childhood and you don't want anyone to experience that. And beyond those two reasons, maybe there's a specific kid, a specific family, a specific situation that encapsulates our why. And the reason we have to remember why we got into this work in the first place is because there will be days where we are tested. (laughs) There will be days where we are tested and we literally will ask ourselves, why am I doing this? WTF. (laughs) Why am I here? And some days that's a moment to moment question, (laughs) right? Especially toward the end of a school year, right? I absolutely know that. I'm like, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? But truly, we have to pull into the why. And creating a story around our why is always helpful. For me, my why is my foster children and their children and breaking generational bonds of trauma. And I can see that happening because I've provided a safe space for both of my grandbabies to grow up from birth to their first two years of life with a lot of love, attention, kindness, everything they need, health insurance, food, transportation, childcare, all of it. Because I know the power of a solid attachment in infancy. And my husband and I were willing to sacrifice our own time, our energy, our money, our space in our home, (laughs) right? To make sure that these two little baby girls so far, hopefully there'll be more, (laughs) but that these two babies girls got a good start in life. Because we know that the first five years of a a child's life, specifically, more importantly, the first two years of a child's life, really mark their trajectory through life. So that's something, that's a radical self-care practice I pulled into myself. I was getting sick of watching how the foster system was hurting children. And I, for my heart to be okay and for me to pull back into my authenticity as a social worker, I knew I needed to become a foster parent. That is not the option for everybody, and I want to state that very clearly. My radical self-care was becoming a foster parent. That might not be the same for everybody, but my foster kids keep me authentic. They keep me honest, right? I can't pull into any bullshit around them. I can't pull into theory. I can't pull into DSM diagnoses. I can't pull into any nonsense. They keep me accountable. They keep me honest, and they keep me authentic, and that was a radical self-care practice that I had to pull in for myself because I was tired. I felt like I was losing that authenticity in the work. 
And that's one of my whys. I have a lot of whys and they have different names. <laughs> you know, I just recently had a young man who graduated high school where I am in June. Very proud of him. And he has been homeless for the last two years living in an RV. This is a young man who has made straight A's while living in an RV. And he has had perfect attendance while living in an RV. He's had some behavioral issues here and there because trauma. But he is the very picture of resilience for me. So for me, when I think about my why, and there are days when I'm like, why in the world am I doing this work? Why don't I just escape to a tropical island and you know become a motivational speaker and be done with it? <laughs> um, it's because of kids like him. So these are just two of my whys. And the reason that it's important for us to remember our why, again, is because we will be tested at every level of this work as helpers, healers, and change makers. This work is not easy. We are doing this work in very challenging circumstances, especially right now, right here in this country and in this global time that we're having. Right? We have to recognize that we have challenging work to do in a challenging context and remembering why we do it is very important. One of the other things that we have to think about connected to remembering why we come into this work is remembering how we do the work and being very honest about the context in which we do our work. The honest answer is we do our work within the context of capitalism and capitalism says that there's scarcity. Capitalism tells us that there has to be competition. Capitalism tells us that if I get something, that means someone else has to lose something, but it might mean that I deserve it. Capitalism is very individualistic. Capitalism is very performance-based. So we have to recognize that that is the context in which we do our work as helpers, healers, and change makers. And sometimes that capitalist lens in which we do our work is not authentic to the work we do, right? So for many of us, again, we have to sacrifice a little bit of authenticity to be attached to the society that we work, that we work and live in, yeah? Like you have to go out for grants or ask for donations or, you know, do a GoFundMe page to get funding for some of the work that we do because people are not prioritized in a capitalist society. Profit is. And if you can't make a profit off of helping people, then those people get pushed to the back. And that's the context in which we do our work, right? The most vulnerable, the most poor, the most sick, the most in need get pushed out of a capitalist society because they can't produce. They are not seen as being of value. And we have to be honest about that. The people we serve are not valued in this society, which is partly why some of you may have gotten into this work because you saw that happening and you said, no, I want to change that. I want these people to know that they're seen and heard and loved. And that's beautiful. And you're going to have to pull into that why when capitalism tells you, sorry, we can't serve them. There's not enough funds. Right? Capitalism is what says there's never enough money for education. But you need a new bomber? No worries, write that check. That's the society we live in. Let's just be honest about it. The society we live in right now is caging children at our border using private funds. There's private industry that has no incentive to get rid of those kids in those beds. If anything, that private industry has more incentive to cage more children to make more profit because they owe their stakeholders, their shareholders, a return on their investment. Right? That's capitalism. And that's the lack of authenticity that we have to work within because we all have to pay our bills. We all have to put food on the table. We all have to keep a roof over our head. We all have to play this capitalist game 
until we have a different way of being <laughs> in a society, right? And I'm not going to hold my breath for that. I'm hopeful, but I'm not going to hold my breath. So we have to be honest about how we do the work. We also work in a, in a society that says women are to blame for rape or women's bodies are not their own. And therefore, men, politicians and men in the church should be able to dictate how that body works. We live in a society that says help people, but only if they're deserving. That's just the reality. We also live in a world that's homophobic. We live in a world that's very racist and focused on white supremacy right now. And all of these things are intersectional to each other, but also to the work that we do and to those we serve. These are all the things in context in the soup of the work that we do. And we have to remember that. Nothing that happens to those we serve, nothing that happens to a client or a student happens in a vacuum. Like the fact that I'm working with a lot of homeless families and families that are losing their, their jobs is a direct result of capitalism. Here in the Bay Area, the people who own private companies and developments want to make a profit off of the housing market. They have no incentive to build or sell affordable housing because it's no sweat off their back for all these poor folks to just leave the area. And that's literally what people have said in board meetings and in city council meetings. Well, if you can't afford to live here, you don't deserve to live here. But there are families that have lived here for decades and they want to stay here for decades, but they can't because of capitalism. And I have to bear the brunt of that because I'm working to keep to get them housing. Right. So I'm literally pulling bodies out of the river while upstream the private companies and the developers and the politicians are throwing bodies in. That's the reality of the work and the conditions under which we do our work. We have to keep that in mind as we're looking for solutions. Because again, some of these solutions to the challenges that our clients and our students face and some of the challenges, the solutions to the challenges we face as workers, as helpers, healers, and change makers is kind of radical, right? We might need to rethink this capitalism thing. Now, I know that's a big one and that's too big for a podcast of this length, <laughs> but we might have to, right? But what we have right now is not working, is pushing us further into crisis as a, as a global earth, <laughs> right? Not just in the United States, unfortunately, but we have to be very honest about this. And then the other thing we have to remember as we consider all of these things is to remember why we need change and how vital our work is to that change. I truly feel like we haven't had a lot of phenomenal momentous change in our movements, in education and child welfare and social justice, because we haven't fully taken stock of our radical self-care. We haven't taken it seriously. So we haven't really been authentic in our conversations. We haven't been authentic in our movements and we haven't been fully authentic in our activism. And that's a challenge. We need to wake up. And what I see is that the overarching challenge that keeps this whole system afloat is that those of us who are helpers, healers, and change makers as individuals get tired, we get ground to dust, we get sick, we die, or we leave the profession so that change can't take hold. Because those politicians and those private companies, they're staying for a long time. These systems of oppression have been here for generations and generations, and they have no incentive to change. That's where the radical comes in with the radical self-care. Doing the work on ourselves to uncover all the filters and all the bullshit that's put on who we actually are as authentic human beings is part of it. 
The second part, though, to radical self-care is once we've done that work, it is then our responsibility to help wake up others, to help others see the awareness and the authenticity and accuracy about what this work is and how we do the work. It's our job then, once we've done the self-care, to be more radical and not just pull into ourselves and say, okay, I'm good now, we can move on, but to say, I'm good now, how do I help my fellow helpers and healers and change makers so that we can all be good, so that we can all be sustained in this work, so that we can all thrive in this work, so that we can stay in it long-term, so that we can see the change that we need to see. I keep coming back to this because I see it over and over and over again. And when I talk and I give presentations and I give keynotes, I always hear from folks afterwards how validating what I said is, how radical I am, which I always love because they'll give me a wink and a nod and say I'm one of those two. <laughs> but also how necessary and needed this conversation is around radical self-care and the radical tendencies that we must adopt into our lives, into our daily lives, to be able to be sustained and thrive in this work. There's no other option if we want to continue to do good work in the world. If we really want to see the change in this world that we say we want to see, if we're real about it, then we have to do the work individually. And then those of us who've done the work individually have to hold our organizations and our systems accountable. That is the only way any of this will ever change. And that is the only way any of us will ever thrive in this work. We must remember who we are. We must remember why we do this work. We must remember under what conditions we do this work and the context in which we do this work. And we must remember that we need change because our work is vital and our vital work must continue if we want to see change. So I hope this makes sense to you. I hope it clarifies a little bit of the radical self-care concept that I'm sharing with you. I will continue to share little bits of the radical tendencies that I see as part of the radical self-care that we must engage in to thrive in this work. I want to thank you all for listening and subscribing, but I also want to thank you all for the feedback you've given me because this work has been driving me forward. And every time I talk to one of you who's listened to the podcast or who shared it with a friend or who heard it because a friend shared it with you, I get a little bit more validation that I'm on the right track. And as someone who is pushing out radical concepts, that's really important because <laughs> I really need to remember why I do this work and why I'm sharing this. So I really appreciate those of you who've taken time out to say, hey, I hear you, I'm on the same page, please say more. Thank you all so much for listening. I so appreciate who you are and how you show up in the world. Until next time, friends. Thank you so much for listening to the Steward Project podcast and sharing this space with me. Remembering that how we show up in the world matters, we're all in this together, and we belong to each other. Until next time.